From Washington, this is the MacroCast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Hey, it's uh, Tony Fratto here uh, with Hamilton Place Strategies, John Fagan with Markets Policy Partners. We're bringing you a special, uh, an, an intermeeting uh, macrocast, John, right? I mean, that's the way to think about it. It's an, it's an intermeeting uh, uh, macro discussion with our great friend, Megan Green, uh, scholar, economist, FT columnist. Uh, and, and Megan, we wanted, we were so excited to get you on, especially to talk about your most recent column in the FT that published yesterday, I guess, mm-hmm. earlier the, on Monday, the 18th or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. You know, so, so your column, I think said some things that a lot of people were, were thinking and are afraid to say out loud, which is like presidents actually can't do a whole lot about, about inflation. Um, and it must be a pretty frustrating time for the White House. I know it's for, we know it's frustrating for people who are dealing with high inflation, also. But there's a there are some pretty big disconnects on how people think about this from an economic and a political standpoint right now, right? Definitely, I'd say most people don't have any idea what inflation is actually, what the figure is, um, and they just notice that their paycheck isn't going as far, and that's definitely right. Um, but they don't understand very well how it works. So there was a recent uh, poll that came out of Americans were asked um, if the Federal Reserve hikes interest rates, what happens to inflation? And the majority thought that that would cause inflation to go up, um, which is, of course, the opposite of what actually really happens. Um, It's sort of a Turkish Erdogan approach (laughs) to monetary policy, (laughs) which isn't working very well, right? Turkey's got inflation over 70%. So it just goes to show that most Americans don't really know where inflation is. They don't really know what's causing it necessarily, though, according to polls, when asked who's to blame for inflation, um, the plurality say it's Biden's policies. Um, And then when asked, you know, who has a lot of control over inflation, again, the plurality thinks it's the president Um, More Americans and more voters think it's the president than the Federal Reserve, whose, you know, official mandate includes price stability. So it just goes to show how poorly general Americans really understand inflation and and also what to do about it. I think it makes me you're reminding me of my just, you know, sort of basic marker that like we teach some things in schools and like once again, we could really just use a, some basic economics uh, through schools just to get help people understand what these things are that they're that people are some pollsters going to ask them their opinion on uh, over time. Now they do know when they drive down the street and they see gas prices high, and whether they're not talking, they're not thinking in terms of aggregate price increases, but they do have a sense that you know gas prices are high, and therefore things are expensive now. Definitely. Yeah. So gas prices and alcohol prices, people tend to be pretty up on um, and also where they are relative to what's happening with their paycheck. But it is worth pointing out that inflation is a deeply personal experience. So we kind of have this basket and we weight different things to come up with one single aggregate number for 
uh, inflation for price rises, but actually your experience with inflation depends entirely on what you buy. Um, so, you know, if you're a homeowner, you have a different experience. And if you're a renter, if you have a lot of medical expenses, you have a very different experience from someone who doesn't. So whatever the headline figure says, actually, um, it doesn't necessarily reflect most people's experiences. But what we do know is most people can't really do without energy and food and energy and food costs are up pretty significantly. And, and that affects you know, low-income people disproportionately because a larger percentage of their paychecks are going towards that. And inflation is, is outstripping wage growth. So overall, people's standards of living are going down. You make the point in your column that so much of the inflationary impulse that we're seeing is based on higher energy prices. I think you say roughly half of it. And uh, how, when policymakers are trying to grapple with this, the distinction between sort of organic inflation and supply shock dynamics, how is that something that they can, you know, that they can properly account for in their policy? Yeah, so figuring out what is demand driven and what is supply driven is really difficult. Um, and of course, it, it doesn't matter each individually, what matters is each in relation to the other. So prices go up because there's a, a, a disequilibrium between supply and demand. And so we know that we shut down the economy during the pandemic and then we reopened it and the, there was a surge of pent up demand and we bought a lot of stuff. So we know demand is a piece of the story, but then we just keep having these successive supply shocks um, between, you know, reopening the economy and having all these supply chain dislocations between China's zero COVID lockdowns that shut down factories. Now we've got a war in Europe. Um, those overall all have gummed up supply. And so the distinction really matters because um, central banks are the primary inflation fighting actors uh, and they actually don't really have tools for these supply side things. Um, so the Fed can't do anything about oil prices being up. They can't do anything about China's zero COVID policy or Russia invading Ukraine. Um, all they can really do is engage, we like to call it engaging in aggregate demand management, which sounds really fancy, but it just means killing off demand. That's all a central bank can do. And so the Fed's trying to figure out how it can kill off demand without going too far and pushing us into a recession. Um, the San Francisco Fed came out with an interesting blog post trying to parse out what was supply versus what was demand. And what they came up with was that about half of inflation is supply driven, about a third is demand driven, and the rest is kind of indeterminable. It could be either. Um, and so that's one estimate. In the US, demand is a bigger piece of the inflation figure for sure. Um, you know, we grew by around five and a half percent last year in the U.S. Our potential growth is around 1.8 percent. So obviously there's a demand component um, and much bigger than in Europe where they had, you know, fewer fiscal stimulus measures. Um, so it could be policy driven. So it's not entirely wrong that Biden's policies played a piece. I don't think that's the number one answer for why we have higher inflation. I actually tend to think it is more supply driven and these successive supply shocks that have been the real problem. Megan, when you talk about the, I mean, so, so so something like really interesting in this particular set of supply shocks was not just that, that uh, you know, so it's, you know, demand, uh, demand goes away and demand comes back in 
in force, but also just like dislocations caused by shifting demand, right? I mean, stuff that I want when I'm sitting in my house versus stuff that I want when now I'm allowed to go outside and walk around and, and, uh, and go and go do things. And so you could, so just like from an, like an, so aggregate demand, you can imagine essentially would stay the same, right? But it's shifting to different parts of the economy in, uh, in different ways. And so how do you think about that in, in factoring? Um, and then we're going to get into another question, which I have for you, which you note in your article, which is just government's role. I mean, you know, just, the, the uh, you know, where we see that, uh, you know, big changes in the G portion also. Yep. Um, yeah. So in terms of the composition of demand, it really did shift a lot um, because we built up our home offices and bought a lot of computers and bookcases and nice Zoom background components, um, which none of us had bothered buying before. Um, and so demand for goods really soared and demand for services cratered um, because going out to a bar or restaurant could land you in the hospital. So people stopped doing it for a while. That has since actually started to reverse. Um, so there's been a multi-decade trend in the U.S. away from buying goods towards buying services, the U.S. and other developed economies. So in the 1960s, about two thirds of what we bought were goods. Um, before the pandemic, about two thirds of what we bought were services. So that's a huge shift. Um, when we reopened after that first uh, lockdown, we had kind of a, a shift, a reversion back towards buying goods, but that's already being undone. So the good news is that, you know, inflation really took off and it was driven entirely by goods inflation. Now there's less pressure on goods and more on services. The bad news is because of how we weight our inflation baskets, um, services are about five times the weight of goods. And so that means that if we're shifting towards services, that's gonna push up services inflation and that's gonna feed through and push up inflation for a while um, to come, unfortunately. Um, in terms of your other question about you know, the government's role in all of this, I do think that there is a correlation between the inflation that we've seen in the US, um, which does have a significant demand component, and the inflation we're seeing in the rest of the developed world, which really is overwhelmingly energy and food costs, um, supply driven. Um, and I think that is to do with our pandemic response, which involves throwing a lot of money at a lot of households and companies um, just to try to reach uh, individuals and, and small firms in particular that were falling through the cracks since we didn't have good mechanisms for ferreting out who exactly needed money. Um, and so we had huge fiscal stimulus measures in 2020 and 2021 in a way that Europe and Japan didn't really. Um, they had a different approach and, and spent much less overall. Um, and so I think that that has boosted inflation. Um, that being said, starting uh, from the first quarter of 2021, uh, the U.S. government has been retrenching, actually. So this year, we're going to undergo the second biggest fiscal retrenchment in our history, second only to 1946, um, relative to the year before, because we had all these stimulus measures in 2021. We're not repeating any of them now. And so actually, government spending is a huge drag on growth this year. Now, you could argue that what happened was the government kind of handed the baton off to individuals and firms to a lesser degree, um, because they made all these these transfers into households bank accounts. And so now this year it's the households who are starting or who are continuing to um, pay for stuff. And so consumption has been pretty buoyant. 
and that's keeping demand up. Um, but the government has already done, it's already had its spending spree. That happened last year and before that. Um, in fact, only at the beginning of last year, since then the government's actually been retrenching. I'm so glad you brought that. I was that's what what I really wanted to get into, uh, uh, not just on not just the the, uh, the fact of it, right, which is undeniably true. It is a it is it is significant drag. I literally hear no one talking about it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is forms no part. You can watch CNBC or Bloomberg all day long, and no one will talk about fiscal drag uh, this year and and what that uh, what the impact might be. Uh, on inflation. I suspect one of the reasons for that is that some people just aren't paying attention to it, but the other is that it's hard to quantify, isn't it? I mean, I mean, you know, when, when you're, when you're putting dollars into the economy, you know how much you're putting in based on what baseline, like just size of the economy, a guess on output the gap, right? I mean, you could have debates over the size of the output gap and things like that, but you kind of know what you're putting in. Here, like the, like the base is shifting. We don't know what people are doing with savings. Really, credit is available also. And I just think it's, I mean, it's a, I wanted to ask you, like, how, how do you account for that? I mean, have you given thought on how you would measure it? So it's not actually that hard to measure. Uh, maybe it's just hard for me. Yeah, the CBO comes up with estimates. So they basically just look at um, what has been legislated. And actually, Brookings has a great fiscal impact monitor that updates this regularly, and they present it in a nice chart. So it's really easy to see. Um, And they're just looking at what's been legislated at the federal, local, and state government level as well. They're looking at tax revenues, too. And so it's a fairly straightforward calculation. The more difficult piece, though, I think, is what's happening to that money and what's it gets it to where it's supposed to. And then you have to come up with kind of multiplier effects. And what does that mean for households and different um, quartiles by income of households, which are all different. Um, And then it gets really tricky. And so I think that's why we're having trouble. We know what the government put in and what the government's getting in revenues, but it's really tricky to figure out the the next round of spending and what the multipliers of all of that are. And so, as I pointed out, the government stopped that spending a long time ago, but households have picked it up pretty much. And and that's why demand continues to be fairly strong. Um, With interest rates rising, the hope is actually that demand will cool off quite a bit. And there are some indications that's happening, but we don't have a great way of knowing exactly what those multipliers are. Is that even harder with the bipartisan infrastructure bill being that last sort of impetus of fiscal spending? That is obviously not the same kind of, you know, shot to the, you know, right into the veins of the U.S. consumer. It's a it's a slower drip. Uh, And uh, is that is that difficult to model in terms of not just the multiplier effect, but when it actually is spent versus legislated? Yes, absolutely. And that's gotten more difficult because of all these supply chain disruptions. So, you know, even those projects that were shovel ready aren't happening as quickly as we had expected because they're having trouble getting materials and it's all more expensive and everything's delayed. Um, And so trying to account for that is pretty difficult. But but that feeds through more into kind of how much productive investment is happening. Right. We know what the government has has at least earmarked for this. It's just figuring out. Um, the second and third round effects on the economy that's really difficult. There just is no such thing as shovel ready, though. I mean, it just doesn't, it just doesn't, nobody, nobody, no developer goes through or state or municipality goes through the effort of, you know, environmental, you know, planning, zoning, you know, like years of 
permitting. The years of preparation, permitting, acquiring land, all the things that you have to do and then sit around and wait for money, right? Because that's all expensive. So like it, it, it's yeah. never as fast as, as people think it is. Also, you know, all, all infrastructure spending takes literally years to spend. You know, you could approach, you could, you could say government could say we spent it this year by sending it to a bunch of people, but it doesn't show up, doesn't flow into the economy for, uh, for a couple of years. And it's all, it's always, which is, I mean, it's, it's all good. That's why we should keep, you know, doing it, doing it well and the most productive uh, projects, but, uh, but it's always, it never, it, there aren't as big, you know, as many big bangs. Like you would think, if, if you were a Biden administration, you were kind of hoping maybe, right, you would get out there and you can go stand in front of some big projects that were that were getting done. And he hasn't had very many. We haven't seen too many pictures yeah. of him out there doing that yet. And I think this is partly why, while everyone can agree we need infrastructure spending in the U.S., we have such a hard time passing it. So I think that's right. Yeah, election cycles pass before you can actually go point to the bridge, you know, yeah. or the tunnel and um, and where people are happy about it. Yeah, but in terms of, you know, how to boost potential growth. So the most yeah. useful bang for your buck infrastructure projects are really high up there because they're investment, they're really worker intensive, generally green infrastructure projects are even more worker intensive. Um, so it's a way to upgrade your labor force, um, as opposed to, for example, mailing stimulus checks. Um, to households, that's a, that's a sugar hit for sure, and gets you know absorbed pretty quickly, particularly for low-income households. Um, but it's not going to boost your potential growth. So um, one, you know, more immediate yeah, gratification. The other um, is better for the economy, but you've got to wait around to figure out what the benefits are. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, uh, and, and especially some some things you you don't aren't even something like a bridge to look at. Right? Like if you're going to do fix the, you know do smart grid, if you're going to improve the electrical grid, no one goes around and takes there aren't ribbon cuttings for improving the <laughs> the grid, right? It's like I've never seen that. That's right, and everybody expects you know that kind of good infrastructure. So you know everybody criticizes you criticizes you for not having it, but nobody praises you for actually doing it. It's just expected. Can I ask about your about your column? Or one more thing about your column is that you, you did mention a number of little things um, that uh, you know, whether it's tariffs or um, what were the what else did you mention? Tariffs and um, you know some some items on fuel, either on yeah. the side or pricing. But any, I mean, no one of them will have anything more than a very small impact, but taken together, anything useful there? So I think there's lots useful there, just mm -hmm. not necessarily in terms of bringing down inflation. Um, so, you know, a lot of the measures are really aimed at bringing down energy costs. Um, and given that, you know, as John pointed out, that's about half of our inflation that might help. So, you know, Biden's releasing a lot of the strategic petroleum reserves every day um, to try to improve supply um, so that supply and demand can be brought into equilibrium since demand is way back at pre-pandemic levels. Um, that helps on the margins, but actually doesn't offset what we're losing as a global oil market from um, the U Ukrainian war. So it helps a little bit, um, but also given it's a global market, it's probably overwhelmed by a whole bunch of other factors. Um, there's also been an attempt to kind of convince 
other oil producers to ramp up their production. Um, so for example, Biden was just in Saudi Arabia speaking with MBS who, you know, he had promised he would make a pariah. Um, the Biden administration sent a senior delegation to Venezuela um, when Russia invaded Ukraine. It turns out you can only sanction so many oil producers before <laughs> there are really deleterious effects on your own energy costs. And so it seems like the US is trying to convince some other producers to ramp up their supply without really any effects so far, but that could be one way to alleviate supply. Um, there is an issue in that, well, first of all, there are sanctions on Venezuela and we don't recognize their leader. And so that it's gonna be complicated to get rid of those sanctions, which are hard to get rid of anyhow. But um, in that case, I think it'll be really difficult to get rid of them. And then Saudi Arabia is producing, you know, fairly close to capacity. We don't know exactly what capacity is, but according to Aramco, they're not far from it and they've only achieved it once. Um, so the idea that they're going to ramp up supply um, and, you know, whatever the rest of OPEC thinks about it, I think is a little bit fanciful. And even if we ramped up supply, there's a huge bottleneck in refinery. Yeah. Um, so we mothballed a ton of our less efficient, older uh, refineries uh, in the depths of that first lockdown when oil prices went negative. Um, and we can't just open those back up, you know, by flipping a switch. And so even if we had more oil production, we wouldn't manage to refine that oil. So that's a problem. There's some interesting innovation, kind of financial innovations to try to figure out how to put a floor under the price of oil so that producers are convinced that it's worth the investment to boost production now. Um, it's just really bad politics, right? To, to have the government basically supporting big oil producers. Um, you know, I don't think that's going to play well with the American voter. And also, if we're all trying to move to renewables, is that really what we should be encouraging anyhow? So all these all these attempts to kind of boost supply could help on the margins, but none of them is a real silver bullet. Um, there's an, the newest proposal is an oil price cap that the US and its allies just kind of agree to. Um, I honestly think that's inspired by the EU sanctions, which will kick in on December 5th of this year, whereby they're not only embargoing Russian oil, but also um, insurers and shippers. Um, I think insurers and shippers piece is the key one. We saw with Iran that once you sanction insurers and shippers, you really did take a lot of that oil off the market. So some analysts at Barclays, for example, think that oil could exceed $200 a barrel if that kicks in. Um, and I think to use a technical term, this has scared the bejesus out of a lot of policymakers. Um, and so I think they're trying to figure out how to get around that um, without weakening sanctions. And so this oil price cap would allow them to sort of exempt um, shippers and insurers as long as oil sold at a certain price. It's just, you know, I think India and China are probably going to continue to lift cheap Russian oil and they'll lift it at just above that price cap and we'll be pretty happy with it. And OPEC isn't going to appreciate being undercut on oil prices. So I think it's going to be really hard to actually implement. It'll be really leaky. But we might go that direction just to get around this um, shipping and insuring issue that we've got. So that's something that could help on the margins. And to be fair, it does help with the fact that, you know, we're pouring all these revenues into Russia, which they're using to finance this war that apparently we all oppose, right? That's why we right. impose the sanctions. So it could help with that. Um, and then just domestically in the US, there's a proposal to cut gas taxes. The federal gas tax is 18 cents a gallon. That's a real drop in the bucket relative to 
you know, the price of gas per gallon, which is around four and a half dollars nationally on average. Um, and also, you know, energy companies could benefit from that. So the, the whole benefit won't necessarily go to the consumer. And it could kind of have an, a counterintuitive effect in that if, if gas is cheaper, people might use more of it. And that would create demand, which would push gas prices up. So that would be totally 22 right there. Yeah. yeah, that would be counterproductive. So we might have that happen. I think that, I mean, that again would be a political win just to show that the administration is doing something about inflation, but I, I don't think it will help a whole lot. Um, and then you mentioned Tony tariffs that we imposed on China in particular that economists like me and everyone else said would be inflationary. As it turns out, they weren't that inflationary. And so by getting rid of them, it probably wouldn't take that much heat off of inflation. It would help a bit and we could expand it beyond the tariffs we imposed on China. There are steel and aluminum tariffs, for example, we could get rid of. Um, <clears throat> that's less popular with certain unions for sure. Um, so wouldn't be an across the board political win for the administration, but we, you know, we could shave maybe, you know, one and a half percentage points off of inflation. Mm -hmm. Inflation hit 9.1% in June. So that's helpful, but hardly a silver bullet. And then the final thing um, the US government's trying to think of is um, pinning this on greedy companies and saying, you know what, you're getting much higher revenues because prices have gone up so much. Um, but you're, you're, you're just gouging customers and you don't have to do this. Um, and the argument is that it's happening in uncompetitive industries like meat packing, for example, and energy. Um, and it's true, if you have a highly concentrated industry, you tend to have less competitiveness. In fact, the lack of competitiveness is usually what causes the, less the, the higher concentration in an industry anyhow. Um, but we've had high concentration and superstar firms in a majority of our industries for a number of years now. I don't think that that's really changed massively in the past year when we've had higher inflation. So the connection between higher prices and market concentration isn't so clear in this. Yeah, instance. actually, for the for most of that, if you look at the past 20 years where you've seen you've seen greater concentration, but you've also seen a great disinflation also. So. What about the argument that you hear from some White House officials and administration officials about, you know, inflation has been measured in kind of a wonky way for a long time. We know that, the, as you said before, the real experience of inflation is deeply personal. And we all know that education, health care, elderly care, child care, drug prices, these have all been run away over the last you know, over the last decade or so uh, in, in people's experience and uh, lived experience. But mm -hmm. it doesn't seem to show up in like CPI numbers. And the administration has said in connection with their drug pricing bill, look, if we have a poor set of options on controlling gasoline prices, we can go in and try to do some things in the areas that have really hit people in the wallet and pocketbook over the last few years, like drug prices. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the critics will come back and say, well, then that's just going to, you know, going to add more demand and, uh, and it's going to be self-defeating. Where do you come down on that uh, on that kind of approach? So I think it's similar in that yes, it could help on the margins, but mostly it's it's got signaling virtue that the government's doing something about inflation. I mean, with drug prices in particular, that has sped through into the data, um, and so it is pretty clear that we've had inflation and. Pharma and healthcare, um, and so that is a way to address it. It's one. 
um, factor that has been driving inflation higher, but it's one of many, um, particularly in healthcare. So it'll help, but it's kind of tinkering on the margins. And it, I like, I do think it's the best that the administration can do. So this isn't me being critical um, and saying they're not doing what they should. My point is that there's not a whole lot they or any other government uh, or president could actually do about this. I think it is mainly down to central banks and even there where supply side factors are driving inflation higher, central banks can't do that much either. So we're in a bit of a bind. I want to just briefly touch on, you know, you discussed the CPI over 9.1%. We've talked on the macrocast before about the profusion of inflation metrics and the Fed's favorite inflation metric is one of the ones that kind of looks best, but they haven't really talked about it yeah. and haven't focused on it. Now, market, market uh, prices are reacting to whatever Infl I mean, there are inflation metrics all over the place now. It's like import prices. <laughs> People yeah. take note of that, which was pretty esoteric before. Yeah. I just want to give, you know, when you look at the inflation dashboard, you know, is it, it, is there a case to be made that we should really be looking at core PCE prices and focusing on those because they are what essentially the Fed is targeting? And then as a side question to that, expectations, we've heard a lot more Fed official chatter about inflation expectations. And, you know, if the data is wonky, expectations and survey data on that side is really squishy. And, uh, and is sort of, there's even there, there was even a paper out of the Fed staff uh, in the not uh, too distant past, you're really questioning the, the orthodox, <laughs> you know, understanding that inflation expectations are something that the Fed really needs to attack. So uh, just, a, just a sort of broad question about measurement from the classic inflation to in expectations. How, do we, how should policymakers be making sense in messaging around all of these different uh, gauges? Yeah, so the big difference between CPI, which just came out and was really high, and the Fed's preferred metric, PCE, um, is just the weighting of different baskets. And so you can argue all day long what you think about the methodology of it. Um, uh, the Fed has chosen one just because it weighs housing and healthcare slightly differently. Um, but I, I wouldn't say one is necessarily better than the other. I do think there's a question about paying attention to core versus headline inflation or PCE or CPI. Um, just in that uh, energy and food costs are generally pretty volatile. So if you always include them, that creates a lot of noise in the data. And so as economists, we like to just strip them out and look at core. Um, but actually right now, food and energy costs haven't been that volatile. They've just been rising pretty significantly. Oh, right. And you know, when you talk to Joe Sixpack, he's looking at gas prices and his grocery bill and that really hits. And so I think if we're looking at the impact on people's lives and consequently you know, their standard of living and the political implications of that, you, you need to look at all of the factors and it's, it's you know, food and energy that are hitting the hardest right now. So we can't just say like, it's fine because if we strip them out, core looks like this. Um, I do think we need to pay attention to that. Um, one of my favorite gauges, just to give it a plug, is um, one that nobody looks at. The New York Fed came up with the underlying inflation gauge. It's a very unsexy name, but, um, but it actually has done a really good job of showing kind of um, inflection points in inflation. Mm -hmm. And so it actually predicted that we would have really high inflation for a long time. Um, and so we'll see if it also predicts the inflection point on the way down, but that might be worth 
looking at. Um, when it comes to inflation expectations, the idea is that if you think that prices are going up, you're going to rush out and buy that big item now because there's no point in waiting until it's more expensive. And in doing that, you're generating demand, which in turn pushes prices up and you end up in this endless spiral. So the theory behind it really works. Um, I did mention before earlier, though, that, you know, most Americans think that when the Fed hikes rates, inflation goes up, right? So people don't actually have a great sense of how to respond when policy happens and, and change their expectations accordingly. Um, and, you know, most people don't know where inflation is today. So how are they going to report on where it is, you know, in five years from now or 10 years from now? Um, most people sort of take their most recent experience and extrapolate it into the future. That's that's human nature. And there's an assumption of mean reversion, but actually what we've seen since the global financial crisis is that mean reversion doesn't necessarily happen. Sometimes you have these kind of regime shifts and maybe we're going through one now too. So inflation expectations are important, I think, but we, we don't really know how to measure them. Um, and particularly the consumer inflation expectations you know, most people don't really know how to think about inflation. So why are we basing policy on that? I would say the paper that you um, cited though, um, by Jeremy Rudd has like economics best footnote ever. Uh, I think it's the second footnote and it, it's just absolutely scathing towards the Fed. So come for that, but also stay for the analysis on inflation expectations. Hey, um, you know, Meg, uh, while we have you, um, I mean, uh, we were talking mostly about the United States, uh, but I think uh, uh, you and I end up uh, somehow crossing paths in Italy and places yeah. like that all the time. Could, could we take a minute on Europe? Uh, yeah, sure. They're obviously struggling with a lot of the same things. And I know uh, you spent a lot of time there. And um, uh, so they're faced with some of the same challenges, some uh, you know, not as uh, robust tools as the United States ha have sometimes, I think. Um, although, I mean, unless you want to, unless I'm going to count then defeating inflation, you know, structural propensity to slower growth maybe is, a, is probably, is probably help, helpful in Europe's favor right now. But, uh, but we don't know what this near term, I mean, the near term future is going to be very, very challenging for them uh, because of uh, energy more than anything else, right? Yeah, so I think uh, Europe has it much worse than the US. Europe, Europe is being disproportionately largely hit by the war in Ukraine, which is much closer and also they're reliant on natural gas infrastructure for a lot of their energy. Um, and so, you know, energy costs were already higher in Europe, have gone up much higher than in the U.S. in Europe now. Um, and then on top of that, you know, most of inflation is supply driven. So there's not a whole lot that the ECB can do about that. But then there are a few different kind of special things about Europe that make the ECB's job even harder. I used to think that being like a toll booth collector would be the worst job ever. I now think being at the ECB right now. Being Christine Lagarde would be the worst job ever. Um, just because she's got such a hard time of it. So, I mean, we talk about stagflation in the US and it's, you know, me, it's a worry because it's every central banker's worst nightmare, but it's my base case for Europe that they'll have high inflation and no growth. Um, in fact, if Russia doesn't reopen Nord Stream 1 when it's done with maintenance uh, later this week, 
Uh, even the commission has said that that could push the Eurozone into, into recession. Um, and I think that's quite right uh, because it's not just a question of price. You just wouldn't have enough supply. So a lot of companies would have to have shutdowns um, and that would push um, growth and well, it would push Europe into contraction. So yeah, particularly, particularly in places like Germany, right? Yeah, Germany and also Italy, you know, who both are reliant on manufacturing for a lot of things that's very energy intensive. So, um, so that's really tricky. So I think stagflation is a base case scenario in Europe, even if Nord Stream 1 does reopen at, at the lower capacity it's been running at. Um, but then at the same time, um, the ECB has followed the Fed in the sequencing of its monetary policy um, in that they've insisted on winding down their bond buying program before moving rates. And so now we all expect them to hike rates. Um, this month, because at the end of last month, they stopped their bond buying. Um, but in the Eurozone, bond buying was the only way to compress spreads for certain countries, particularly Italy. And so what we saw was that the second that bond buying ended, Italian yields started creeping up. Um, and in fact, Italian spreads to German bunds were really blowing out. So now the ECB has decided it has to come up with a new tool to address that. Um, but it's going to be a really difficult um, thread to needle, I, I, needle to thread, sorry. I think um, the ECB's only chance of success really is in complete obfuscation. So what they need to do is come out and say, we have a lot of money that we're going to use to buy up a lot of bonds for countries that need it, but it's really complicated. And we have a thousand algorithms kind of feeding into what triggers our bond buying and how much we buy. And it won't be just based on spread, it will be based on speed. But again, it's really complicated, you can't figure it out. And so that keeps a two-way bet on Italian BTPs. Um, and that's the only way that investors don't actually test this tool. The problem is that, you know, this, this new anti-fragmentation tool will almost certainly be brought in front of the German constitutional court. And of course, they're not going to put up with it's really complicated. They're going to want to know exactly what the mechanism is so they can make sure there's no monetary financing of Eurozone countries. And so it's, it's going to be really difficult for the ECB to pull this off. Also, there are leaks that the ECB hasn't quite worked it out yet. So at the same time that everybody's worried about Italian debt, Mario Draghi, the Italian prime minister, has announced that he's resigning. Um, there's a chance he might still stay. Uh, there will be a vote of confidence the day before the ECB meets and announces its new tool. But I think the ECB was kind of hoping that it could provide a soft launch of this new tool and give kind of a broad brushstroke of how they were thinking about it. Um, whereas actually there might be quite a lot of pressure on Italian bonds already so that a soft launch is really not gonna cut it. So the ECB has a huge task in front of it this week. Um, and I'm not particularly optimistic that they're gonna pull it off. Mm. Meg, um, thank you so much for joining us. It's really great to have you on. Um, it's always, it's always. I, I think uh, John and I could probably stay and talk for another, like another forty-five minutes uh, <laughs> on top of this. There's, there's no shortage, and we love love having you, having you on to talk about it. Um, talk about all of this, both uh, here and and Europe. Um, I want to tell our listeners to uh, to go find your column at the Financial Times. Um, it's, a, it's a regular column. It's always uh, super informative and fun reading. Uh, always always love reading you, and they can follow you on Twitter at uh, at Economist Meg. Uh, yeah. 
That's right. No, thanks. It's been great to chat with you guys. There's no shortage of stuff to talk about. So I'm sure we'll do it again soon. We definitely will whenever you want. Um, consider it like open, open mic uh, for, uh, for you. Whenever you got something to say, come say it here. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Meg. Thanks, yeah, John. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share.